thought if I could just stand on the ruins of this outpost, that something would be reconciled, that I would understand something deep about what had happened to us in Lebanon. Standing at that outpost as a tourist is still one of the greatest moments of my life. I'm Gil Galanos, and welcome to Storymark, a show about leaders, the moments that made them, and the mark they leave. On today's show, journalist and author, Mati Friedman. A former correspondent for the Associated Press, Mati's work as a reporter has taken him from Israel to Lebanon, Morocco, Moscow, the Caucasus, and Washington, D.C. He's written several successful books and received multiple awards, including the New York Times notable book, and he's made it to Amazon's 10 best books of the year. I'm inspired by Mati's unique perspective and unwavering commitment to telling truth through his own lens. He weaves beautiful language and journalistic integrity into an elegant storytelling fabric. Originally from Toronto, Canada, Mati emigrated to Israel in 1995 at the age of 17, settling in the religious kibbutz of Ma'ale Gilboa in the northern part of Israel, the first of many adventures that have contributed to his highly recognized career as a writer. You've received great recognition and a number of awards for your writing. What does success mean to you? I guess um, success means that I get to keep writing, you know, as long as I can keep it going and I can write what I want without anyone telling me what's right. Every day that I can still do that is success. It's lovely to be recognized. And I mean, when I when I wrote my first book, I just hoped that, you know, more than three people would read it. And the <laughs> idea of winning an award for it or that many people would read it, that really seemed like too much to ask. So I still can't quite believe it. When did you know that you wanted to become a writer or a journalist? If you look at my eighth grade yearbook, it has a very nerdy picture of me. And then under underneath it says, what do you want to be when you grow up? And it said journalist. And I don't think I knew what that was at the time, but uh, I had this idea that that was what I was going to do. And I might also have written Deep Sea Diver. That was that might have been option option B. But um, yeah, I've always I've always loved writing. Before I really knew what this would involve, it struck me as you know the right <laughs> the right idea. Um, I did other things in the middle, and for a while I thought I'd be a farmer and uh, had some other uh, some other plans in the middle, but writing drew me back, and I've been lucky enough to do it as a profession for my entire adult life. So what topics first interested you when you started your career in journalism, and um, did you always know you wanted to write unique stories pertaining to Israel? Yes, I started out at a wonderful news magazine called The Jerusalem Report, which came out once every two weeks. And because of that schedule, you couldn't cover the news because by the time your article came out in print, the news was was gone. So you couldn't cover the daily news. It, the, the schedule was too slow. So I was taught to cover marginal stories or stories that seemed marginal, that were on kind of the fringes of people's attention, but which said something deep about Israel. And it turned out that that's where the greatest stories are anyway, that the news in Israel is actually one of the least interesting things happening here. That what's fascinating about this place is its society and the country itself and the way people interact with the country. And there are a million stories here on every bus in Jerusalem. If there are 50 people, there'll be 50 stories. And that's what I'm looking for. I very rarely cover the headlines and I don't like to cover politics, although I've been dragged into it a bit in the past couple of months as it's become unavoidable. But uh, what I'm really looking for are those human stories that say something deep about the place and if possible about the human condition. What have you learned from these experiences that you wish more people understood? 
the key thing is that Israel needs to be understood in a Middle Eastern context. And that's something that's very hard to see unless you actually travel around the Middle East, because most of the time when people come to Israel, they're coming from the West, they're coming from the United States, and they get on a plane and, you know, Newark and, and get out in, in Tel Aviv. And the, the context in which they see this place is necessarily the context from which they've come. But that's not where we are. And to really understand Israel, I think the first time that I really understood Israel was when I went to Egypt for the first time. And this was 2000. And I went on a bus. At the time, there was a bus. And it crossed through Rafah, the crossing at the tip of Gaza, and then went through Sinai. And I, I was in Cairo, and Cairo is just this unbelievable city. It's 16 million people or 18 million people. It's completely wild. I mean, it's a city that's much bigger than the state of Israel. There are more people in Cairo than Jews on Earth. And Egypt is just an absolutely incredible and kind of staggering place. And then I just took a bus back to Israel and I realized that's where we are. We're not next to New Jersey, you know, we're not next to the UK. We're in the Middle East. And and most of the Jews in this country came from elsewhere in the Middle East and North Africa. They came from the Islamic world. It's something that we kind of have pushed to the margins of our understanding. We're next to Lebanon and we're next to Syria and Jordan. And we need to understand the regional context in order to begin understanding what this place is and what what its society is. So I think that's the main thing I've learned from traveling around this region over many years. By the way, my father was born in Alexandria in Egypt and moved to Israel at the age of 12. Have you been? No, I haven't been to Egypt other than the fact that we lived for eight years in Sharm el Sheikh. My father was posted there managing the airport and I was uh, there from the age of almost zero to, to eight after uh, we signed the peace process and we moved back to Israel, I guess. People describe Sharm as kind of paradise. Yes, it was. So I haven't, I haven't been to Egypt, but um, I'm planning to, maybe with my father. Do it, don't wait. I haven't been to Alexandria and I would love to go, uh, but Cairo will blow your mind. Yeah, it's definitely on the list and I should probably do it soon. So in 2016, you wrote Pumpkin Flowers about your military service in South Lebanon uh, and specifically about uh, your service in the Pumpkin Outpost, uh, which I had the pleasure to be at uh, during my army service. I spent a lot of time in South Lebanon. So part of your research, I guess, part of uh, writing the book, you went back to Lebanon years after you left, after we gave it back to, to Lebanon and we draw it from the area. And you decided to visit Lebanon as a civilian. So you basically landed in Beirut, uh, pretending or presenting yourself as, as a Canadian reporter, if I get it right. I told them I was a student. Student. A student, which is true. I, I was at the time a Canadian student, but I was a student at Hebrew University <laughs> in Jerusalem. <laughs> and I'd served in the Israeli military. So those are the details that I left out. But strictly speaking, I wasn't lying. So... I'll just emphasize that Lebanon is a very dangerous place for Israelis, let alone Israelis that served in South Lebanon. A lot of Hezbollah all around there. And I guess my first question is, are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> As someone who spent a lot of time in South Lebanon, I cannot even imagine stepping foot in that area. Uh, well, at least until we have peace in the, in the region, if and, and when, and uh, when Hezbollah is going to be eliminated. But uh, what, what was on your mind? Why, what, what was the motivation? Weren't you afraid? It's hard to recreate my mind from 20 years ago, but um, I, I understood that a few Israeli reporters had gone to Lebanon with foreign passports. And 
it just struck me as something that I could do. I mean, I have a Canadian passport. Everyone loves Canadians and I could go. And the idea would, would not give me rest. I tried to shake it because I realized that it was probably a bad idea. And of course, my parents weren't that uh, excited about it. But You told them in advance. I told them in advance, yes, which wow. might also have been a mistake. But <laughs> I did and I just couldn't shake the idea. I knew that I could do it. And the idea that I could go back to Lebanon as a tourist, maybe you have to have been a soldier there to realize what that means because many Israeli men of our age served in Lebanon, spent a lot of time in Lebanon, had very significant experiences in Lebanon. And one of the most striking things about the place is how beautiful it is right. and how seductive it is and how interesting it is. And we used to joke all the time when we were soldiers that we would come back as tourists. That was one of our jokes, that we would come back and hike in the same hills where we were laying ambushes and we would you know, float on an inner tube down the Litani River in South Lebanon. <laughs> and, and that was a joke, of course, but I kind of took it seriously because I knew that unlike everyone else in my platoon, I could do it. And in 2002, there was still, it's hard to remember, but there was no Google and there was no Facebook mm. and there was no way to trace you and no one had any idea. And I was you know, prepared with a whole cover story if I was asked at the airport what I was doing there, but they couldn't have cared less. You know, some sleepy clerk just <laughs> stamped my passport without even looking up. And, and then I was in and I spent about two weeks in Lebanon. And Two weeks. Yes, and I saw the whole country. I mean, the part that I write about in the book is South Lebanon because that was, you know, the point, but uh, I spent a long time in Beirut, which is an incredible city, a lot like Tel Aviv actually in many ways. And I saw the mountains and I saw the north and I saw the, I saw Baalbek where there are fascinating Roman ruins. There are a few takeaways from that trip. One is that I, I think I had a naive idea about what going back would do for me. I thought if I could just stand on the ruins of this outpost, that something would be reconciled, that I would understand something deep about what had happened to us in Lebanon. And this is also the time of the Intifada here in Israel. So buses are blowing up here and cafes are blowing up here. And I wanted to love the Middle East. I was studying Arabic at university at the time and I wanted to love the Middle East and I was having a hard time because of everything that was going on in Jerusalem. And I thought that I could just reconcile that by going to Lebanon and, and seeing the Middle East, but not through the sights of a rifle. I was going to see it as a tourist and that didn't happen. Nothing was reconciled. <laughs> that was a very naive belief of a young person. Looking at today's reality, another thing that I learned in Lebanon is that if we're not careful, we're going to be Lebanon. Hmm. And that I've been thinking about a lot over the past couple months as Israel has really fractured. They start out a lot like us, right? They have a European affiliation and they have a big Christian population and they have a great beach and they're a bit Western and a bit Middle Eastern and you know they have a great economy and the whole Gulf does their banking in, in Lebanon and Beirut is the Paris of the Middle East in the 1950s and, and they lose it all. Lose it all, and if we're not careful, we're going to lose it all. So it sounds like the motivation for the visit was not necessarily just about the book. It was a lot more than that, right? More than anything, it was a personal need. I needed to get back to this outpost. Something was unsettled in my head, and something powerful had happened at this place, which is very hard to explain to people who weren't there. Although I, I, I've tried, I wrote a whole book about it. You get it. But there was something about the experience of being a very young person in this foreign country threatened but also just fascinated by the place and we used to spend months there and yeah. we barely went home and it really seeped into your bones and shapes your brain and I just wanted to go back and although the easy reconciliation that I was looking for didn't happen standing at that outpost as a tourist is still one of the greatest moments of my life 
So when you think about it 20 years later, uh, do you still carry those moments with you? Um, how do those experiences continue to impact you? They do, they do. And I guess we should also say, I mean, you know this and I know this, but flowers on the Israeli military radio is code for casualties. So in, in Lebanon, we spoke this language that was very floral. So the outposts had names of plants. That's why the outpost was called pumpkin. There was an outpost red pepper and an outpost citrus and outpost cypress. And the, the outposts had these beautiful names, which were very floral. And the, the radio code was also very floral. So if you had casualties, you wouldn't say, I have casualties. You would say, we have flowers. That was the code. So pumpkin flowers is an attempt to access that very strange language that took beautiful words and used it to obscure a reality that was as ugly as, you know, as ugly as it could possibly have been. The experience in Lebanon has shaped everything I've done since then, I think. There was one moment in South Lebanon in 1998 when, I won't go into the details, but I was in a, an armored vehicle that was stranded on a dirt road after it was crippled by three explosive devices that blew up on, under the vehicle and beside the vehicle and we were stuck. And... Hezbollah started shelling us. They knew we were there somewhere. They didn't know exactly where we were and they were shelling along the road. And I just had this moment of realization that I had no idea where I was. <laughs> you know, I'd come to Israel a few years before with these stories about the kibbutz in my head and I read you know, Herzl and Gordon and people like that. And what did that have to do with Shia, Islam? And our allies in South Lebanon were Arabic-speaking Christians. What are Arabic-speaking Christians? And I was in this very Middle Eastern situation, this very bewildering situation. And I think that basically what I've been doing since then is trying to figure that out, uh, primarily for myself, by the way, before uh, before explaining it to anyone else. And I'm just lucky to have a profession that allows me to uh, try to explain this place to myself and call it a job. Your 2019 book, Spies of No Country, tells the little-known story about the Arab section, an intelligence unit born during Israel's inception. Do you feel a personal connection to this story? And why did you feel that you're the person to tell that story? It's a good question because I have no connection to, you know, intelligence work of any kind. And my family is not from the Arab world. This is very much a book about Jews from the Arab world who come to Israel before the creation of the state and help found Israeli intelligence. And it's about their experience. And that's not my family story at all. But because of my growing understanding of Israel as a Middle Eastern society and my understanding that at the center of this story are Jews who came here from the Islamic world. I wanted to tell a story about that, again, chiefly to explain it to myself. I just wanted a story about the birth of Israel where the main characters were Jews who spoke Arabic. And I found this story. I was lucky to meet one of these spies. He was in his 90s at the time. He died two years ago at 96. And I meant, I just got to spend hours with him in his kitchen, and he told me the story of the Arab section. And the Arab section is really one of the, it's kind of the nucleus of the Mossad in many ways. And it's this totally amateur outfit of about a dozen guys, none of whom are trained in any serious way. They don't make salaries. They don't own a radio. At first, they don't own a camera. And they were just flying by the seat of their pants, and they were incredibly brave and sometimes they were incredibly stupid and and they were thrown into the storm of events in 1948 and about half of them died and half of them came back. So it's a spy story, but through the spy story, it's a way of talking about Israel's own double identity and Israel's own cover story and the way we think of ourselves as a European country when in fact we're something quite different. And there are so many layers of 
I tend to be confusion and displacement. In that story, that's, um, I think it says something deep, or I hope it says something deep about the country today, not just in 1948. In your most recent book, Who by Fire, you give a stunning account of Leonard Cohen's tour in Israel during the Yom Kippur War. What inspired you to tell this story? If you're Canadian, and certainly if you're Canadian and Jewish, you know Leonard Cohen, and I just grew up with those songs in the background, and I always thought he was great. But I was really surprised when he showed up in Israel in 2009 and gave a concert, and the country went nuts for Leonard Cohen, and I couldn't understand what was going on. Like why everyone was so excited about Leonard Cohen. I, th- I thought of him as a Canadian icon. And 50,000 Israelis showed up for this concert, and the phone lines crashed when the tickets went on sale, and, and the country really was just you know, completely enthralled by, by Leonard Cohen and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And then I read an article in Yediot, which is one of our daily papers, about this tour that had happened in the Yom Kippur War of 1973. And the details were a bit fuzzy. It wasn't clear what he was doing here or how he got here. It wasn't clear exactly what had happened, but it seemed quite clear that something very significant had happened between Cohen and Israelis <laughs> in, at the Sinai front of the Yom Kippur War. And I just filed that away as something that would be worth figuring out one day. This was 2009, so I'd never written a book. I I didn't know how to write a book at the time. But it's a Canadian-Israeli story, and there aren't that many of those. And it seemed to me that I was the right person to write it because, you know, how many of us are there really? And, you know, my experience in Lebanon is not the Yom Kippur War, and I'm certainly not Leonard Cohen, but the experience of a Canadian who's dropped into this place in very murky circumstances, that rings familiar to me. So I thought maybe I could access the story. And it took years to do it. I mean, it took years to get access to Cohen's writing. And it took years to find the soldiers who'd seen Cohen. The whole history of this tour was completely subterranean and unofficial. There's no official record of it. Officially, the, the tour never happened. So I had to put it together from just scraps of people's memories and photographs and private albums and a, a, a Cohen manuscript that I managed to find by some miracle in a university library in Ontario. And all the pieces came together over over a number of years, and, and then I wrote the book at the very beginning of COVID, when uh, you know when everything shut down. I had a few months when my schedule was completely free, and I finally sat down to write the book, and that's Who by Fire. How do you deal with some of the negative reaction that people have about your writings? For the most part, I ignore it. Sometimes criticisms are worthwhile. I've, I've received a few that have been true, you know, that not all criticism is uh, is wrong. But, um, you know, I take criticism seriously if it comes from people I respect. And most of the noise comes from people who I don't know or respect. So it doesn't really, it doesn't really bug me. You know, you have to have some level of thick skin to operate in journalism, certainly in journalism in Israel. And it, I, I get it from different sides. So, you know, when I write about how the you know the mainstream press has really messed up the Israel story and has done us a real disservice. I get blowback from a certain side of the political spectrum. These days when I'm writing about the failure of our government and the way this government is really driving our society into a rupture that we, we're going to have a hard time repairing, and I'm getting blowback from a completely different set of people who agree with me on a lot of the other things that I write. So you can't take it too seriously. You have to write what you think is correct. I'd like to ask you a few questions that I ask each of our guests. What piece of advice you wish that someone would have given you at the start of your journey? I guess what I would say is that that tenacity is as important as talent. So it's not enough to be talented. You have to really be tenacious if you're going to make it work. 
and you have to really be focused. What are you currently obsessed with? Right now I'm doing some stories for Smithsonian Magazine in the States, which I've really enjoyed. Just did a cover story for them about the date palm. Hmm. It's kind of an attempt to look at the Middle East through the date, the fruit. Yeah. And they let me do that, which was very nice of them. 6,000 <laughs> words about dates. I got to go to the Persian Gulf. I was in Abu Dhabi and I spent a lot of time climbing trees and had a wonderful time. What are you most optimistic about? This might sound strange just based on what we just said, but I'm actually quite optimistic about Israeli society, which seems so fractured and so crazy at the moment. But considering all of the incredible challenges that this place has overcome in the past 75 years, I think it's a, it's a society with incredible power and, and ability, and it can do amazing things. I've never been in a country with as many smart people, and none of them are in politics, it seems, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But they're here, they're here, and that's reason for hope, I think. You know, if I'm looking for a reason for optimism, then I find it there. Mati Friedman, it was so wonderful to have you on our show. Thank you very much for inviting me. You've been listening to Storymark. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Also, consider signing up for the Storymark newsletter, where we'll keep you up to date about upcoming guests. Visit storymarkpodcast.org to sign up, and you can also follow us on Instagram, at Storymark. Storymark is brought to you by iTrek Studios. iTrek is a nonprofit that inspires tomorrow's leaders through peer-led week-long treks in Israel to experience its innovation, diversity, and complex reality firsthand. For more information, visit itrek.org. I'm your host, Gil Galanos. Our producer is Patrick Emil, and associate producer is Rebecca Sebastian. Our editor is Zev Levi. Thanks for listening, and Litraot. See you next time.